Well, we're going to be looking at the, the second half of Psalm 19 this morning, uh, which I've entitled Responding to Our Creative God, because that's exactly what David does in this second half here. Uh, to start with, you know, our, our work displays our character. What we do displays our character, whether it's our uh, vocation or things we just do around the house, things we do in front of other people. That's what displays our character. They are not our character, but it's the display of our character. What we produce and how we do it gives people insight to what is important to us. And I've had the pleasure of working with Corey uh, over the last, well, recent weeks, maybe a month or so. And, and he's helping me with landscaping my backyard. And I, I thought I was hiring him to do my backyard. I hired him to show me how to do the backyard. <laughs> I, it, it wasn't him, it was me. I just couldn't stand to see him on the end of a shovel without participating, so I have. But what, what has impressed me the most um, about what he does for a living is he spends a lot of time on what's not seen. Uh, what will be seen uh, are the beautiful plants arranged to complement each other in a way that is pleasing to my eye, to my wife's eye, and everybody who visits, and I hope you all will when it's done. Um, what's not seen, but would be obvious if not done correctly, are the efforts to give the plants the best opportunity for longevity. Corey concerns himself with what can grow under certain species of trees, the soil condition, the drainage, the level of maintenance, and a myriad of other things. A walking path must be built in a certain way to continue to look like a path. He wants to avoid the puddling of water. He wants the material to stay put and be even. And all this is to be done in an order that doesn't disrupt the flow of the next thing that has to happen. And my point is, Corey's nature of being in it for the long haul, the long game, is evident in his work. To me, People with that type of character, people who are putting the groundwork in so the future will look better, it, it's, a, it's the character that's saying, I'm loyal, I'm honest, I'm faithful, without ever bragging about being any of those things. And Corey is. And it speaks to me that he will consistently try to do the right thing, whether anybody is watching or not. Nobody gets to see the soil that's beneath the covering plants, but he knows and he wants it to be there. So last week we looked at David being awe, in awe of the character of our creator God and his glory being displayed in that creation. This week we'll see David's impression of the glory of God that's shown in the law as opposed to the heavens. Just as I can see Corey's character in his work, what we see in God's law is a revelation of God's character. Those first six verses about the heavens were praise of the God David saw in the skies. This week we'll see not just praise, but we'll also see a proper response to the nature of God that David sees in that law. When we read the word guided by the Spirit, we see the character of God. I know Eddie 
uh, has been adding to a list that he keeps of the attributes of God as they are revealed to him. And most of them are revealed in Scripture. I don't know if the ones that David points out in these passages are on that list, but he could certainly add to them if not, as we all can keep in mind various attributes as we read Scripture. What is true of the law is true of God himself. So when there's a description of the law, you can consider it a description of God's character. David is in a good spiritual place, understanding adherence to the law is really an obedience to the creator of the law. It's not about the law. It's about the creator. So let's look at the psalm in detail and realize for ourselves what David realized and recorded. And as I read our passage, if you're able, please stand in reference to the word. If you care to sit and meditate on the word, that's fine too. But Psalm 19, 7 through 14, reads like this. Excuse me. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord God, As we dig into these passages this morning, show us your true character. Enlightened our minds and hearts and eyes and and create a view of you that is like none other. Let us know the real you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Let this sermon itself be without error and guided by the Spirit. Let what is heard by all and sunk into their hearts be that of the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, be with us this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, at the heart of these verses is this impression. God, revealing himself in Scripture creates our reverent and joyful obedience to him. Again, God revealing himself in scripture creates our reverent and joyful obedience to him. God creates obedience. This means we don't create our joy and obedience. It's God's doing. And we'll look at um, just a few verses at a time to discover this. And we'll start with verses 7 through 9. 
that God creatively reveals himself through his word. In the first six verses, David was where what we saw last week is in awe of God's glory and is in full praise of that awesome creation. Here, David remains in awe, but moves to a response of the glory of God shown in the law. So he spends half his time on the response, not just in the praise of the glory. He tells us that the law is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. Hence, God himself is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. The very things of the law are the things of God. And David offers uh, a benefit, a reward to each of those attributes. Perfect, or some translations are blameless, is reviving the soul with surety, making wise the simple, being right, rejoicing the heart, being pure, enlightening the eyes, being clean, enduring forever, and true and righteous altogether, or you might say complete. These are the things that David sees as the benefit of the law. And the first thing we notice in each of these is the phrase, of the Lord. I tried to emphasize it when I was reading it, but it just keeps saying over and over, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. Being of defines that they are a, they're from him and are of him. And that's the important part, the of him, as in part of him. The character being displayed in his work, as in my intro, I dis, uh, discussed the Corey displaying the character in his work. The character of God's work is describing him. We can see him in it. All these things are of God. His creation of the law and all scripture, really, is God showing us his nature. When one seeks the face of God, scripture is the first place to look. And it'll describe it in ways that are common for all of us to understand. And to do all seven of these justice would require a few more sermons. But a quick couple of remarks is worthwhile. And let's start with the law is perfect. What God handed down is perfect. Our inability to follow it is the problem. Not being able to follow the rules is a fault of ours, not a fault of the law. The law is perfect. And then taking sure, right, pure, and clean as a group, along with their rewards, we see how the law enhances our lives. And obedience to this law is to a benefit. That would be to the extent at which it could be followed, which isn't really very close. The closer we can get to following the law, the closer we can get to being wise, rejoicing in our hearts, having our view enlightened, and enduring all things. Again, the fact that we can't be completely obedient to the law is the exact reason why Jesus is required in our lives to be able to attain those riches. If that sounds like I'm trying to preach a prosperity or preach a prosperity gospel, I am not. A prosperity gospel would be speaking to material things that we think are going to benefit us by being obedient to the law. 
What promise we see in David's psalm is the rewards of being obedient to God. While physical wealth and health may come in our obedience, it's not the promise. The promise is of spiritual rewards. And physical wealth and health may come, emphasizing may, and the promise is really of spiritual rewards, emphasizing promise. So may could or could not happen, but the promise is maturity. So the promise that David is putting down here is that obedience to the law will bring these great rewards. And what we can see looking forward with the help of Jesus being declared innocent and being able in his strength to find an obedience to God is a promise of the rewards. Verses 10 and 11 is appreciating the creation is appreciating the creator. In these couple of verses, David's poetry is comparing the riches of the law, the riches of the one who created the law, comparing them with the things of the world that are most valued. More desired than gold. Gold is one of those commodities that has remained valuable to this day. Certainly in David's day, it was the thing that showed great wealth. David steps it up to fine gold. So it's not just gold, it's fine gold. Gold out of the ground has potential wealth. Gold that has been refined, especially if it has been fashioned into to an art, into art, has an even greater wealth. That's the gold David is referring to as trying to come up with something that would be as desirable as God's commandments. Sweeter than honey. You know, isn't it interesting how both examples of David have stood the test of time? Gold is still valuable. Honey is still one of the sweetest things this world has to offer. And you don't need to add sugar to make honey sweet. Fresh from the honeycomb drives the sweet tooth of the bear crazy. The law, as written by the Lord, needs no embellishment, no sugar added, to make it true and useful. Jesus had great contempt for the Pharisees' attempts to do just that. As the Pharisees added to the law, they diminished the law. They made it less valuable. Jesus reversed that. The law as delivered was pure, as pure as honey from any honeycomb. It needed nothing added. to be careful, meaning nothing added. It did need something added for our sake because of our problem, not the law's problem. Our inability to follow it needed Jesus added, but that wasn't a fault in the law. It is pure. Verse 11 is really a transition to the problem of sin that David speaks of in the, the following verses. David, having already talked of great rewards of the law, introduces the notion that they are of the same time, or they are at the same time, a warning. In keeping them, there is a great reward. But that implies that not adhering to them has a consequence. And notice those words, your servant. 
David is saying something about our relationship to God. We are his servants. As the Lord's servant is a confession that the law applies to said servant. To use the excuse that the law doesn't apply to me because I don't belong to God has its own problem. If the law isn't going to apply to that person, therefore he's not breaking the law, well, the rewards wouldn't apply to the person either. And there's the crux of the gospel. To know of Jesus isn't enough for salvation. Agreeing with God and believing that Jesus paid for one's redemption is required for the benefit. You have to belong to him. You have to be his servant, so to speak. And the reward is that of being restored as a child or an heir of God. And then we move to verses 12 and 13, and that is the personal response regarding sin in this case. The fun of seeing God at work, I happen to mention to Tim this morning, I did not pick this psalm because of the way it ended. It's part of a little mini-series of five sermons, all talking about a creative God. But we could think about those sermons and put the big, so what, to it. Like, okay, we have a creative God, but what's that going to do to us? What's it going to do in David? And here we get to see it. I, again, not intending to go in this direction, but being excited that the, the last sermon on the creative God is the response to the creative God. Gave me goose pimples. I've got them again right now. Uh, it's, it's great stuff to see God at work in places that you don't intend to see him. He's there. So looking at him, verse 12 really starts the, what is considered the prayer that goes through verse 14. David's thoughts should be our thoughts on how we look at sin. Who can discern his errors? We certainly know many of our sins, but there are sins that are just creeping below the surface that we don't know about yet. You might even consider them in our hearts, just not yet exposed. And what David is saying is those are existing to a level that he does not see them. And I'm sure we can say the same about ourselves. And yet he is asking for relief from such sin. You know, we, we certainly may know that they exist without being able to point at any particular one of what it is. But I think there's another part of this, and that is, I think we can grow comfortable to sin to where it becomes a hidden sin. Something that we just don't regard as like, yeah, I got a handle on that, and maybe we don't. I, it, it's very helpful to have accountability um, partners, spouses, family members that are willing to point out, you know, you're creeping a little too close to pride on that statement. And then it's been revealed. But those things exist down there. And before they manifest themselves into a sin that's been acted upon, David is praying, Lord, keep, expose them, protect me from them. His very words Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
likely these are going to be sins, like I say, of the heart. Things like lust, jealousy, envy, errant worship, other misplaced emotions you might want to call them. David is begging for that declaration of innocence. Theologically, that's a big ask, and it's a correct ask. It's what we should be asking. David knows he is guilty, and it's not the guilt that he's addressing. He's looking for mercy in declaration of innocence. It's as though he's saying, the sin's going to happen. I want to avoid it, but it's in there. I just want to be declared innocent by you, Lord. We stand guilty before God of our sins. But by the blood of Jesus, God is willing to declare the punishment for that sin is covered, and he will, in his mercy, declare us innocent. He would for David, and transcending time, he does for us. Verse 13, then amps up the sins to presumptuous sins. These are the sins that we have acted on, and not only acted on them, but we knew they were a sin when we were doing it. And that's a bad place to be. It's like looking Christ right in the eye and saying, I know, but I'm doing it anyway. And I've been guilty of that. And it just makes me sick to think of where I was when I've done such things. If you've ever faced a stubborn child who looks at you and defiantly does the exact thing that he or she knew you wouldn't accept, then you know what presumptuous sin is. You've seen it. You've probably even done it. <laughs> we should understand God doesn't have a rating system for our sins. Short of grieving the Spirit, God treats them all the same. We are just as guilty of one sin as another. The guilt level doesn't change. We are guilty. And God forgives one as he forgives the other. My problem with presumptuous sin is what it is doing to the person committing it. I use the word defiant in describing the disobedient child. Not only would we be willing to allow a sin to progress from a sin of thought to a sin of action, but we are willing to be defiant of what we know God hates. Repentance is a huge part of the gospel. We must repent of our sins. Defiance is not going to allow that. In fact, defiance is the sin. It's the sin that is masking whatever the action is. You know, I've, I have heard that pride is at the root of all sin. Defiance, willing to know a sin, as sin, and doing it anyway, is like standing on a soapbox or up on a stage and declaring you know better than God. And he should be listening to your version of what is right and wrong. That is putting your pride above God's sovereignty. You can see how this presumptuous sin, while it doesn't climb a scale, 
in God's eyes, it definitely climbs the scale of our depravity, of what we really need to be repenting from. So I just have, in David's response to such sin, let them not have dominion over me. Because he's talking about a dominion. When you let that presumptuous sin progress to the point that you are willingly being disobedient to God, you've climbed into the, the dominion class. The sin is ruling over you. No longer is it God. You've got to get back. You've got to ask forgiveness and repent from those sins. And he will declare you innocent. Way to go, David. The second part of verse 13 is like the second part of 12, but with more force. Verse 12 was, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now when he's talking about resisting what isn't hidden, look what he says in the second part. Then, then being protected from the dominion of sin, then I shall be blameless and innocent from the trend, the great, from great transgression. So he sees it. He sees it just like I was saying, that it gets bigger and bigger and it reaches the level of great transgression. So not only is he looking for being declared um, innocent, he also wants to be blameless and he wants it to be over. And then comes the, the meat of the prayer, this prayer of submission. And verse 14 is probably very familiar and even memorized by many of you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Maybe you've even prayed that prayer without connecting it to this psalm. But there is a connection. Those words are a direct connection to the two types of sins David is describing. With meditations of my heart, he's describing those hidden faults. With words of my mouth, he is praying against the acted upon sins, the presumptuous sins of verse 13. What I appreciate so much about the prayer is that, excuse me, David wants more than to not sin. He is not looking for neutral. He wants to be acceptable to the Lord. So there's the notion of, you know, don't hold this against me, and which is great, you know, declare me innocent. But he wants to be acceptable to the Lord. He wants to be pleasing to the Lord. He wants so much more than what he doesn't want done to them. He wants what, what could be his. Basically, he might be looking back at those rewards. So I want to be a child of God, God, an heir to these great rewards. David also lays down a confession to not being able to do these things on his own, but needs God to do them. And that could be seen in that my rock and my redeemer statement. Nobody is their own rock and redeemer. Not one of us is strong enough or has the authority to be. Only the creator is. I was so impressed by the song that, that Scott chose um, only a holy God. And when you really, if you want to go back and look at those words, it's so meaningful. God did everything in that song. And we are the benefactors, but 
we are not the ones who are doing it. We're what Pastor Price used to just about every Sunday include in his uh, prayer this notion that I'm not a captain of my destiny or however he would, he would say it, this no, it. It's a worldly notion. I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm controlling what's going on with me. And that is so far from the truth. Yeah, you have a lot of responsibility in what you've done in sin. But the recovery from that is not done by you. You have to agree with it, but it is being done by God through Jesus Christ. In a short couple of minutes, Tim will be coming up to help lead us through communion. But before participating, I think it'd be appropriate to call to mind the sins that David's speaking of. Any sin that is grabbing hold of our hearts, those hidden ones, or grabbing hold of our bodies, those presumptuous ones. Ask Jesus for help in rooting out our sins. Let's do this by praying the very words that David prayed in verses 12 through 14. So let's pray. Lord God, hear these words from each of us in this body. Who can discern his errors? Declare us innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.